Hi guys, welcome to Veritas. I'm Emily McHenry. If we haven't met yet, I'm on staff here with Veritas. I'm really glad all of you are here tonight. I'm from outside of St. Louis, O'Fallon, Missouri, if you like really care about that. Whoa, a lot of O'Fallon people? That's kind of honestly shocking. Um, but I'm from O'Fallon, Missouri, and those of you who are from around St. Louis um, probably know of this place called the City Museum. Um, I grew up going to it a ton, and it's one of my favorite places to go back to in St. Louis. Um, but for those of you who don't know, the City Museum is, and this sounds really lame and I get that, um, but it is one of the coolest places ever. But it is truly a museum of trash. Like, that's what it is. It is um, this brainchild from a couple of renowned, like world-renowned sculptors and a team of artists who through the years have been collecting, I mean, tens of thousands of pieces of trash. And they've, and they've been transforming this trash into some pretty, I mean, amazing things. And maybe it's because I'm not an artist and I lack this kind of natural ability, but I think one of the most amazing things to me is, is thinking about how these artists didn't just see like a piece of trash, like they didn't just see a soda can or a broken piece of wire, but they were able to see a whale and, and an enchanted forest and, and this kind of playground that you see with a, a, a plane, a full-on plane um, that's discard, like that's hovering 100 feet above the air. I mean, to me, that's like one of the most amazing parts of the city museum is because it transports you into this world where the broken can become beautiful. And, and it reminds me a lot of God. You see, we're going to see tonight in this passage that we're headed that God is really good at taking the broken pieces of our lives and transforming them into something beautiful. God is really good at not just seeing the state that we're currently in or the state that we were, but he's really good at seeing the person we're becoming. God is really good at taking our failures and mistakes and our regrets and transforming those and using them as a part of this bigger story that he's telling. And that's really good news. So if you've been with us this semester, you know that we've been in the Gospel of Mark. And this is kind of a biography of sorts of the life and ministry of Jesus. And where we're headed tonight, I mean, think about it. We're, we're nearing the end of the semester. We're nearing the end of the story. Um, spoiler alert. Um, but for a second for tonight, I want us to pretend like we don't know where this is headed. And I want us to, for a second tonight, to put ourselves in, in the shoes of the disciples as we kind of hear this story unfold. Because where we're dropping in tonight it is really chaotic, like honestly, really chaotic. Um, people are getting more and more angry with Jesus. People are plotting to arrest him and, and even kill him. And it's in the middle of this chaos, just a few background moments before we jump in to our passage tonight. Um, we're not going to read this, but just so you know, um, Jesus, before this, told Peter, one of his 12 disciples, closest friends, that by the end of that night, he was going to deny knowing Jesus three times before the rooster crowed twice. I know that's kind of cryptic, but remember that because it's important for where we're headed. But after that, same night, okay, one of Jesus' closest friends and 12 disciples betrays him. And he gives Jesus up to the authorities to be arrested for, in exchange for money. And so Jesus is arrested. 
And think about that for a second. I know that we probably know where the story is headed, but think about what that moment would have felt like. Like, think about thinking about how Jesus was just arrested, the guy that you thought was going to save the world, the guy that you thought is God is arrested, and they're talking about killing him. I mean, think about that kind of uh, tension, that, that kind of anxiety about what, what things are going to look like for Jesus, and not just him, but, but for the disciples, and, and for this movement that, that, you've, that we've been reading about all semester. And so we're going to pick up tonight in the middle of that chaos, in Mark 14, verse 66. It says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest, now the high priesthood were the people who just arrested Jesus. And so this is saying, like, one of the servant girls of the people who just arrested Jesus came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you were one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down, and he wept. Just as Jesus had predicted, Peter denied knowing him three times. And I'm always struck, whenever I read this story, just how naturally this plays out. Like, when I read this, this reads really easy. Like, I start to wonder if I was in, Je in Peter's shoes, if I wouldn't do the same thing. And I think the story, it leads us to ask, why? Why does this feel so natural when we read it? Why would Peter, after insisting, he insisted to Jesus that he would never deny him, why would Peter deny him not once, but three times? Why? John Mark the author of Mark, he doesn't really tell us why Peter did that, but he does give us a lot of context clues. Remember what we said earlier, that tensions at this point are really high. Like people are plotting not just to arrest Jesus, but to kill him. And, and at this point, he's, he's arrested. I mean, think about how unsure the disciples were at this point, not just for Jesus' future, but their own. You see, Peter was afraid. He was afraid of what was going to happen to Jesus. And he was afraid that maybe what was going to happen to Jesus might happen to him too. And so in what feels like the most like natural response, he, he protects himself because he, he's afraid. And I think you and I, if we're being really honest with ourselves, we, we do the same thing all the time. Maybe it's with our words, maybe it's with our actions. We start to deny knowing Jesus. Our lives start to look like we, we don't know the God that we claim to love. Maybe that sounds really intense to you, um, but let's just kind of play this out in, in some examples. I mean, maybe for you, um, it, this plays out in your family. 
I know we're about to go home for Thanksgiving break. But maybe for you, when you go home to your family, you start to kind of downplay what God has been doing in your life so you don't have to wade into those difficult, uncomfortable conversations around the Thanksgiving table. Maybe for you, it's you see this pop up in your friend group, in, in your sorority or your fraternity. Like if people knew that you were a Christian, like, like a real Christian, maybe they wouldn't like you anymore. Maybe they didn't want to, wouldn't want to hang out with you anymore. Also, maybe they wouldn't respect you. Or maybe you see this play out for you in, in your job or your internship or, uh, or in your classes. You think that, that if people are going to take you seriously, you, you feel like you have to downplay how seriously you take your faith. We're afraid to. We're afraid of what people might say about us. We're afraid of what people think about us. We're afraid of being labeled as like that Christian guy that no one really wants to hang out with. And maybe on a deeper level, underneath all of that, we're afraid that living a life of faithfulness isn't worth all that stuff. Like maybe if we're being really honest, we're afraid that living a life of faithfulness isn't actually worth that rejection, isn't actually worth losing our reputation over. And so with our words and with our actions, we start to deny knowing Jesus. Our lives start to look like we don't know the God who we claim to love. You know, when I read this passage, um, I can't help but think about this one particular night in college. Uh, this is my sophomore year of college, and I'm back home for the holidays, and I'm hanging out with this group of friends that I had from high school. And now my, my group of friends from high school, we were all Christians at the time, um, but somewhere down the line, we got into this habit of drinking together whenever we were together. And we were all underage, um, but to be honest with you, like, we really didn't care that much. Like, we, it was just us. It was, it was a small group of friends, and we weren't doing anything, like, wild or crazy, and so we just didn't really feel like it mattered all too much. And so this one, one particular night, like, truly stands out. I remember this vividly. We were all drinking, and I was sitting on the couch with a friend of mine, and out of nowhere, she started breaking down, like, sobbing. And she began to tell me in her own words how she doesn't recognize herself anymore. And she starts to tell me how she doesn't just drink with us anymore, but, but at college and with this new friend group that she's making, that she had then started to drink with them, and not just occasionally, but, but like, all the time. And she started to tell us, tell me about how um, she doesn't really recognize who she is anymore. That what started as a decision to drink in the moment because she wanted to fit in has become this like kind of habit of drinking because she wants to be fun and she wants to be accepted. And she feels like if she didn't, then these people wouldn't actually know her. They wouldn't know the real her. And she was getting to this point that she didn't feel like she knew the real her. She started to tell me this, and she's told me how this has been seeping into not just like drinking, but this is seeping in to her faith because she stopped living a life of faithfulness around this group of friends because she was scared. Not just that they wouldn't know her, but they wouldn't accept her. And she's sitting here crying, and I'm, to be honest, drunk. And I'm sitting here talking to her, and I, and I start, like, gassing her up. I'm like, no, you're literally the best. Like, you are so much fun to be around. You don't need to drink to have fun. You don't need to drink to be fun to be around. Your friends should accept you and should love you. 
and truly clueless to the irony here, I start like saying, what if? Like, you know, what if God put you in this friend group to be a light? Like, what if God wants to show through you that, that he really is enough, that he really is the one that satisfies? And in the moment, I, like, could not see the irony at all. But when I woke up, I mean, conviction hit me hard. Because everything that I was saying was true. And, and everything that I, I was saying was good, but to be honest, I needed to hear the words that I was saying. Because... My life, to be honest, looked like far from the truth that I claimed to believe. And to be honest with you, I did not want to give up drinking. Um, I, was, I was pretty reluctant with that. Um, but that night, God started to work in me. And he started to show me the ways, not just in drinking, but in other ways too, the ways that my life what was denying knowing God. And the ways that, that my life was actually pretty far from the truth that I claimed to believe. And I started to see how that didn't just matter to God, and it did matter to God, but, but that it really actually was affecting my, my friends. Now, hard left turn here. I don't know about you, but I was 22 years old when I learned that roosters don't just crow in the morning. Um, I'm a sur I grew up in O'Fallon, the suburbs. Um, I was not a farm girl, and so I had never really seen a rooster until I lived at Suncourt over here. Um, I don't know if a rooster is still there. Um, it is. <laughs> um, but the rooster, like, literally crows at all times of the day. And this rooster, like, we could hear it not just outside of our house, but we could hear it inside our house all times of the day, sometimes at night. This rooster was crowing, like, constantly. And whenever I read the story of Peter and, and, the, and the rooster, I, I think of that rooster. And I think about the next time that Peter heard a rooster crow. And I think about how the images and, and how the memories would, would flood back at the last time that he denied knowing God. I think about the guilt and the shame that he probably felt whenever he felt whenever he heard a rooster crow. Now, I think it's probably safe to assume that none of you have literal roosters in your life that whenever they crow, you remember like your deepest failures and regrets and mistakes in your life. But I'm sure that we all have those things that, that whenever we think about them, whenever we, we see it or we hear it or we come past it, we remember those things that we regret. You know, a quick Google survey shows that 90% of Americans today live with, like, major life regret. 90%. If that statistic is true, then most of the people in this room tonight are living with a, a major regret. Maybe it's crushing for you. I don't know. I don't know what you're walking in here tonight with as you read the story of Peter. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you feel like you have more regrets than, than you think God could ever care to deal with. Maybe you're here tonight and, and you think about who you wanted to be when you were 18, 20, 22, and this is just not it. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you feel like you are broken 
beyond repair. Like there's no way that God wants anything to do with you, let alone the people in this room. I mean, maybe you're sitting here tonight and you feel like you are just too far from God for him to love you. Thankfully, God doesn't leave Peter in that place, and he doesn't leave us in that place either. God is really good at taking these broken pieces of our lives and and forming them into something beautiful. God is really good at not just seeing us in the state that we currently are or the state that we once were, but, but he sees the person we're becoming. God is really good at at taking those regrets and and those mistakes and those failures and transforming them and using them as a part of the story he's telling. One of my favorite passages of the Bible is when Jesus, this is after he dies and rises, spoiler alert, um, he appears to his disciples and he says this. He says, come and have breakfast. Like just so casually, like he just died and rose again and they see him and he invites him over to come have pancakes. Like I just love it. But I don't know if you've ever been in a fight with someone, maybe with your mom or with a friend, and you know that next time that you see them and you know how awkward that is. And remember how like you're probably thinking about everything that you've said in that fight and you're thinking about maybe they still hate me. Do they feel like this is just as awkward as I do? Like, all of those thoughts. And I think it's pretty safe to assume that this is where Peter is at whenever we read this, whenever he comes over for breakfast. He says this in John 21, verse 15. He says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter. Peter has kind of two names, both Simon and Peter, same guy. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. I want to draw our attention to a few things here. For one, Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him for the three times that Peter had denied him. And I think that's really intentional. For every time that Peter failed, Jesus offers a way back into relationship with him. I mean, hear that. For every time Peter failed, Jesus offered a way back into relationship with him. Another thing is in Jesus' day, there's a lot of words for our word love. I mean, in the English language, like, I can say I love food and I love my husband. Um, But we know that those are very different kinds of love. Um, But in the original New Testament language, Greek, um, they had a lot of different words for love. And, And in this instance that we just read, Jesus uses this word agape. And agape love is a sacrificial kind of love. It's a kind of love that chooses to to serve and chooses to persist um, amongst all circumstances. Agape love, I think I have a definition, it's more than a feeling. It's an action and a choice. Agape is a choice to love and to serve and persist 
in, in all circumstances. And so Jesus is asking Peter in this instance, not just like, do you feel like you love me today? No, he's asking him, do you choose to love me? Do you choose to serve me and to stay and persist no matter what comes your way? Because I want us to think about this for a second. When Peter was afraid before, when he let his feelings of fear drive out, like overrun his love for God, like Peter did not stay. He did not persist. And so Jesus is offering him as another chance to agape love Jesus, a, cho- a chance to choose to serve and to love him no matter what came his way. Because for Peter, we know this when we look at the New Testament and whenever we look at church history, that Peter would one day become the guy that led the early church movement. Like, get that. Jesus used the guy that denied knowing him three times to build his church. Peter would go on from this moment, and he would stare the kind of suffering that he was afraid of in the face. And he would choose to serve Jesus, and choose to stay, and choose to persist. So much so that he eventually was persecuted for his faith, that Peter went on to die on the cross. Like Peter himself, he died, he was crucified upside down for his faith. Peter would choose to love and to serve Jesus with the same kind of love that Jesus had shown him. For every mistake, Jesus offered Peter a way back to him, an an agape kind of love. Jesus is asking Peter, in the face of your rejection, in the face of losing your reputation, in the face of your fear, will, will you love me? Will you choose to serve me? Will you choose to to stay and persist no matter what comes your way? And he's asking you and me the same thing. In the face of your fear, in the face of, of losing your reputation, in the face of possible rejection, will you love Jesus? And not a kind of love that is marked by your feelings, but a kind of love that transcends your fear, a kind of love that is marked by service and and a kind of love that is marked by staying and persisting no matter what comes your way. Peter eventually did, and Jesus used him. And Jesus is asking you, will you love me? Will you stop pretending like you don't know me? on the weekends so that through you I can show that I really am enough? Will you stop acting like you don't love me in front of your friends at your fraternity and in your sorority so that I can use you there? He's asking you with your words and with your actions, will you choose to serve me? Will you choose to love me and to stay no matter what comes your way, whatever rises up against you. Jesus asking you, will you love me? Will you agape love me with the same kind of love that I've shown you? As the music team comes back up, I don't know where you're here at tonight, um, 
I don't know what kind of like mistakes, regrets uh, this passage brought up for you. And I, and I don't know the kinds of fear, real fear that you're facing when you, when you leave here tonight. But I know this, that every mistake that you've made is an invitation to come back to God. Every mistake that you've made is an invitation to come back into a relationship with God. And God is really good at taking the broken pieces of our lives and forming them into something beautiful. God is really good at not just seeing who you are now, not just seeing who you once were, but seeing the person that he's forming you into. God is really good at taking your regret, taking your mistakes, taking your failures and transforming them and and using them as a part of this bigger story that he's telling. And that's good news. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you um, with probably some really specific people and and spaces in mind. Um, Maybe some really specific regrets mistakes. And God, I just thank you that that you meet with us. God, I thank you that you died for us, that that you loved us, that you you showed us the kind of love that we're to have for you. God, I pray that we would walk out of here and, and be able to choose you no matter what we're facing this week. God, I pray that you would just be at work in our lives to to want to choose you, to want to serve you, no matter what's rising up against us. I thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in Jesus.